Good Wednesday morning. Today is October 19th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. And for those of you who are coming back for more, I'm blessed you're here. Be sure to tell your friends and family that they, too, can be part of the Thy Strong Word family by listening over the air on AM 850 in St. Louis, online at kfuo.org, or through their favorite podcasting app. And be sure to show some love to our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translation and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. And while you're online, send me an email, too. Ask a question, make a comment, or just say hello. It helps me to hear from you because you, too, are part of the conversation. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, our text for this morning is Daniel 4, all 31 verses. And this chapter begins with an unusual feature, and that is... Uh, It's written by Nebuchadnezzar himself in a letter from his own point of view. Evidently, this is a letter that the king commanded be distributed to all the world. And the subject of the letter? A second dream that he had in interpreting that dream by Daniel. A dream that portends disaster. And the focus of the entire chapter is how Yahweh confronts King Nebuchadnezzar about his pridefulness and what happens to the king as a result. Well, to help us interpret and apply Daniel 4 this morning, I'm pleased to welcome my guest, the Reverend David Duke, Ph.D., pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York, and he's a professor of Old Testament theology at Concordia Lutheran Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Pastor Duke, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Hey, it's good to be here. Drag myself in from the outside. We're in the middle of archery season here, uh, over here in the uh, the great western New York uh, woods and fields. So I uh, hope I can do some help for you. Well, I hope so too. You know, I lived in Connecticut for about seven years when I was a pastor out there. And that's not super close to you, but it's a lot closer to you than I am now. But I never <laughs> yeah. made my way upstate New York. Uh, Tell me a little bit about, you know, what life is like out there and how God's working through you and your ministries. Well, I'm, uh, as you mentioned, the pastor of a a couple of smaller congregations here, uh, way out. And you'd have uh, people cringing uh, at your uh, uh, naming us as upstate because that's not upstate. We're Western New York. Uh, Oh, my my uh, West. I know. Uh, You'll get yourself stoned or have Bill's apparatuses thrown at you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is Buffalo, New York, basically. And uh, we're we're on the border uh, to to Canada, to Ontario. And that's how it is that I'm a a seminary professor in in Ontario, Canada. I'm about 30 miles uh, east of there. And I serve two congregations in Niagara County, close to Lake Ontario. And in fact, uh, Youngstown, New York is a historic place. It's where uh, the old Fort Niagara is. It's a French establishment that the British took over, that the Americans took over. And the War of 1812 had some interesting thing, things happen there. And both sides have monuments to their great victories uh, in the War of 1812 hmm. right there on the Niagara River. 
which is below, of course, Niagara Falls, uh, below being north. Uh, the Niagara River flows north uh, from Lake Erie into Lake Ontario. And that's kind of my backyard. Wow. And right right now, the leaves are all golden and red and the weather is beautiful and crisp. It's just a marvelous place to live and, and do God's work, word and ministry amongst his good people here. That's that's absolutely wonderful. Well, as we talked about before we went on the air, we have a lot of text before us today. So let's just dig right in. But before we do, I'd like to ask you to start our time together in prayer. Okay, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in days of old, you gave visions to great men that you put in place, and they were terrifying and revealing. And uh, in them always is your son, Jesus, who comes to us in salvation. Help us to discern him in this odd telling of an odd tale. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. An odd telling of an odd tale is definitely the way to put it. So we have made our way to chapter four of the book of Daniel. And Daniel so far has been a fascinating book. I, I think that we hear about Daniel and we study it to some extent in Bible studies and Sunday schools. But how often do we focus on sort of the big things like Daniel and the lion's den and, you know, the fire, but we don't really dig in as much as we should in the parish into some of these details. And one of the details that I think is unusual is that here we have a, a letter written by King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. Uh, of course, God's using that to teach us something, and that's what we'll talk about today. But yeah, this first part is a letter, and I'm going to dig into it. Now, I'm going to read just the, hmm, let's say, verses 1 through 18. Now, that's quite a bit, but that covers his introduction and his own description of his second dream. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliness of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's verse 18. All right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pastor, that is so much, right? It's so (laughs) thick and dense. It is uh, cryptic and obscure. But I think if we take it piece by piece, we're going to be able to make sense of it. Now, Obviously, Daniel is going to interpret the dream in the next section, but but we can still speak to it even without having read that far because there's still a lot going on here. Uh, where would you like to begin? Well, I think, uh, as you mentioned, we have a diary entry or a proclamation. You know, he kept notes for himself on this. And he, like you said, he he had it so that it was distributed to the whole world, which would be coextensive with his kingdom, of course. And uh, it's also going to be supplemented a little later on, which tells us that somebody who was uh, churchly thought it would be really important to include in the book of Daniel, probably Daniel, right? And then, uh, of course, Daniel makes it into the Bible. So this is God's word. I think we have to take that into account. This is uh, akin to, I think, the letter that's uh, inserted in Ezra or Nehemiah from uh, the king of Persia when he sends them back and they have to appeal back to the king because they had this uh, this thing here. So that's the word of God. And I think that's important, not just for like the historical purposes of of uh, of defense, uh, uh, you know, apologetics or uh, just some sort of like um, th- that this is um, that this is uh, canonical but that it's actually authoritative for our interpretation. And if you could see me, I'd have my hands kind of waving like I'm in a a classroom. You know, this is important uh, for helping us understand why we are reading this, not just that we are reading something that's really interesting and bizarre, but there's a a reason coming for us to actually. And I think there's a a clue at the very beginning that there's a benediction, Peace be multiplied to you. And some of your versions, I think, might say something like prosperity be to you, right? That uh, it's this it's this benediction from the great king. Peace be to you. <laughs> kind of getting ahead of myself here, but we kind of have a great king who uh, went through some things and said, peace be to you. First thing, uh, first thing in the morning there that one time. Uh John chapter 20s. Yeah. And right. Peter Peter uses that benediction at the beginning of of first Peter and second Peter. He says right. may grace so, and peace be multiplied to you in the same way. And then of course he says in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and it's in a different language and it's separated by thousands <laughs> of years. But this this it is interesting because he says, you know, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the most high God. But when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, says most high God, he's he's complimenting Yahweh, if I understand correctly. But Yahweh is still on the shelf with a bunch of other gods. Yeah, that's a that's one you've picked up on. It's repeated. And I think repetition is very important, uh, especially in Daniel, when you see repetition. And we heard it three times that Daniel, this Belteshazzar fellow, Daniel, it has the spirit of the gods mm -hmm. in him. And so you get like, is this just a pagan king who can't get his mind right? Like, so we've got, we've got, like you said, uh, Yahweh among many gods up on a shelf and Yahweh just sort of like went up to the top shelf with the good stuff. Right. Uh, or is this okay in the sense that the perception of demigods in the service of the most high God is not necessarily a doctrinal no-no. Now, that's a brain puzzler, and I wouldn't dare say that there are other gods, you know, coming down to it. But just the notion that this great king kind of acknowledges that there's this one God over these other forces and other powers, you know, well, what would they be? Well, yeah, that's where you end up getting... Uh, a heretical kind of thing, and I wouldn't want to go that direction. But it's interesting because we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar now, and he's already gone through the this occasion. So all of Daniel 4 is in his mind, which we'll do in just a bit. Also, uh, we've had uh, his encounter with God in the fiery furnace in the last chapter, and in chapter two, his encounter with uh, the golden idol vision, and also chapter one, where he's encountering the wisdom of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in their royal comportment. He knows that they're important already. So, yeah, what's going on here when he says the spirit of the holy gods? I don't know. Uh, but I, I don't like to just sort of say, well, it can't be this thing because, well, that would that would violate some sort of preconceived notion we have about the world around us when we really don't actually know. Or, you know, maybe Nebuchadnezzar is just a pagan king who can get his mind right after all. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times, but at least he knows who the most high God is. And I think that's really important here. And his acknowledgement of that, the most high God has done for me, right? And I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to tell you about it. I've right? used this story before, but, um, you know, I've traveled to Haiti just a couple of times. My dad has traveled there more. We have friends in Haiti. In the village that we go to, there is a, um, a basically a witch doctor, a voodoo practitioner, and he is a believer in Jesus. But the problem is... He puts Jesus on the shelf with the rest of his spirits and gods and other people to whom he calls for help. So whenever I see, you know, pagan kings or pagan people, you know, speaking of God in this true and positive way, as you said, inspired by God, it, it always makes me wonder just what we've discussed. You know, is this just him throwing him on the shelf with the others? Or maybe he's on a higher shelf, as you indicated, right? Because he's the most high God. You know, from his perspective and from all the things that Daniel has done for him in the name of this true God, he's like, well, at the very least, this is the God that actually does things. Right? This is this is the God through whom things actually happen, as opposed to me wondering, well, was that coincidence or was it because of my faithfulness to my gods, et cetera, et cetera.
Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between Friday night gods and Sunday night god, right? Right. <laughs> well, and you know, and Daniel's writing this down, and you know, it is unusual because we have this from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar, but as you rightfully noted, it is still inspired scripture. You know, there are par- perhaps parts that Daniel doesn't include. He's including the parts that he thinks are important to what uh, God is wanting him to declare. But yeah, it's just a fascinating kind of perspective there. And yeah, we we don't know. We don't know exactly where Nebuchadnezzar's mind is, but we certainly know, you know what happens next. So we get yeah. into. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and there, there's a there's an important another important repetition there with the spirit of the holy gods uh, distinguishing Daniel from the rest of them, right? And that's an important thing. The great king is acknowledging that Daniel has this spirit of the holy gods and that's a problematic kind of phrase for us we've been paused over it for a little while here but we're gonna end up missing the fact that he's the chief mm-hmm. uh and and one of the things that that we have we kind of gloss over a little bit is in our catechesis is we talk an awful lot about you know the offices of christ like he's the prophet he fulfills that office he's the king and he's the the high priest as we're taught and properly taught but we end up missing the other office of the of Christ, and that is the wise man, uh, capital W, capital M. The wise man is by devotion to God's word and application to his surroundings. Right? It's important about wisdom. It's it's sort of like God God's word in action. Uh, the individual uh, has a proper relationship with God. That's one part of being a wise person, as you see all through the Psalms. Uh, has a proper relationship with his neighbor. So can you do the love of your neighbor uh, in actual, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> intercourse and um, and uh, business and commerce and all that kind of stuff? Can you actually do this in the long term? Not just like, oh, I see that he needs some food. Here's $4 for some soup. I'm a good neighbor. No, it's like, well, can you live next door to this guy? who's got a farm just like your farm or a business just like your business and your competitors, can you still be a good neighbor? And how would you be a good neighbor? Uh, And that's one aspect of being a wise man. And then the other aspect is, well, are you basically in tune with the, with the cosmos? You know, are you, are you wise enough to plant seed in the spring so that you can eat in the winter? Or in my case, are you wise enough to go out in the field in October so that you can have meat in February and March? That's that's what a wise man is. This, this person who has a comportment with God, with his neighbor, and with the creation in as, as a whole. And Daniel is that guy all the way and he's called the chief and boy we we're kind of dancing around he calls him the chief of the magicians let's just dodge that one and go on <laughs> to the next stuff <laughs> right well and again we're talking about from the king's perspective right yeah so right. he he gets into some of these details of his of his dream and some of the things that he wants to be decided so i'm going to re read some of it Um, He says the vision, this is verse 10. He says the visions of my head as I lay in bed. I don't know that that rhymes in the Aramaic, but (laughs) the visions of my head as I lay in the bed were these. I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. It's very, very tall. The tree grew, it became very strong. Its top reached heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth and its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. 
and the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So we get this image of this gigantic, massive, beautiful tree. We have uh, illusions. It's not an illusion because this is way before Jesus said it, but we, we as Christians will think about the birds being sheltered in the branches of you know the trees that represents God's kingdom that being provided from it there's there's just this heavenly imagery of this tree but we know well, well I guess we can reveal that the tree is going to end up being Nebuchadnezzar himself mm-hmm. but it's this fascinating imagery that I don't think is um, uncommon to their worldview to see that there's these great trees and they see them as powerful things yeah, you have to say, well, when you see a tree like this, you have to see uh, the tree of life, question mark, mm-hmm. right? You can't say yes or no, but you really do have to uh, let that question come up. Is this the tree of life uh, in its grandness, in its glory? And uh, it, it it has this, this uh, quality of being able to shelter and feed all the all the beasts of the earth, right? And I, I don't think we can we can uh, minimize the relationship uh, of that. I think Christ is Christ Jesus in his parable is clearly referring to this. I think he's talking about this, and it teaches us how to read Daniel four that there's this kingdom that's bound up to a man, and it is good for everyone, uh, and it's it's. Uh, Sufficient is a better word. It's sufficient for everyone. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You plant it in the the garden and uh, there it grows and birds of the air can take uh, nests in it and so on and so forth, right? That and that whole run of parables that he does to really show how how pervasive the kingdom of God tend, uh, intends to be. And here we are, like I'm at, at one corner of the world. Uh, with the Niagara Falls in my backyard, it you know it literally is a corner of Earth, and here the gospel is being preached, and sins are being forgiven, and people are in the kingdom uh, now, in the church militant, and in the going into the church triumphant. Right? That's that's how this works, and you have to be careful, of course, because Nebuchadnezzar isn't Jesus. Right. You don't you don't get to draw an equal sign, but you have to say, well, here's a nice picture of Jesus in Nebuchadnezzar. Who's a pagan king. <laughs> but at the same time, Which, right? Yeah. But at the same time, does he not also see himself as this? He's not thinking in terms of Jesus, but certainly he sees himself as perhaps like a God king because this yeah. ends up being a lot about his pride. And yeah, we know and what's, I think, yeah, we know what's going to happen to the tree. That's exactly right. You're, you're anticipating the, 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 the actual problem but i think before we go there we mm. <laughs> there's a couple of things we gotta we gotta take care of otherwise we're gonna miss things because uh we're in chapter four and this is the first time we've had one of these grand apocalyptic visions as opposed to the vision of the golden idol and the 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 fiery furnace so we have to kind of talk about apocalyptic literature otherwise this isn't going to make sense because we've got like the seven weeks we've got these watchers we've got the whole world involved which is a little different and it's going to get uh from the first three chapters and it's going to get intensified of course in those uh in seven and twelve i think where 
you have the abomination of abominations and it's just like pure uh unadulterated apocalypse just flying at you you know like a sandblaster here we've just got the introduction to it and we have to handle it it's so apocalyptic literature uh, is that seven weeks thing seven time periods and then these these heavenly beings coming down and making proclamations well how do you actually define this well i think you have to define it against other things first of all you have what's called eschatology and eschatology is the study of the end of the world the eschaton right and that's basically saying things like well the end of the world is coming you have a beginning we're in the middle of it and there's going to be an end and uh then the problem for christian interpretation of eschatology is well, Jesus brought the end of the world with him, as the demons actually said to him, are you here ahead of the appointed time to, to torment us? And Jesus basically says, yes, with his actions, you know, he sends them into, into the pigs and whatever have you. Uh, and all that's all the problems with John the Baptist even asked Jesus, are, are, are we supposed to be waiting for somebody else or what? And Jesus gives an eschatological verse to, to, to uh, calm his cousin. You know, that's eschatology, the end of the world and the end of the world is here now. That's one kind of study, and that's that kind of literature. The other one is predictive prophecy. All right, it, within 70 years, the two kings whose uh, kingdoms you're afraid of, well, they won't even be enough people to count as a kingdom, right? And that's Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, you have uh, uh, Samaria and uh, Syria uh, are the objects of that uh, that prophecy. And sure enough, within 70 years, they were too few to be counted as a people within that. That, that would be 7, no, 721 BC or whatever, somewhere around in there, 701. I can't remember exactly, 721. But there's that's predictive prophecy. Apocalyptic stuff is like this grand, there's this kingdom that exists in heaven and it's doing something in the earthly kingdoms and everything has to respond to it. Things melt. You know, trees grow to enormous sizes. Uh, angels are flying around making all sorts of proclamations. Uh, oceans are dividing and splitting. Beasts are coming out, you know, uh, you know, apocalyptic beasts, not like animal beasts. But uh, so there's these this cosmic uh, this cosmic reality is being played out right here in our backyard. That's apocalyptic literature. And that's what all this. And it gets really crazy because you can't take it literally. And that's where. A lot of people go sideways when it comes to Daniel and trying to figure out just what is meant by seven weeks. You know, I mean, well, maybe it's just like appointed time. It might just be that, not really seven of something, seven days, seven months, seven years. That's uh, we have to kind of be careful as we move through uh, this vision as we go forward. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, like I say, go sideways. <laughs> Perfect explanation. One of the things I've always been adamant about when we teach people about the Bible, we must understand that the Bible has different genres in it. You know, it's not a book. It's a library of books. And these different genres must be read according to their genre. And so, as you've carefully explained, apocalyptic literature needs to be read as apocalyptic literature. And hmm. to do so, to read it as, say, we might read a history text, is to undermine what really is trying to be communicated there. Um, I do want to move on to the rest, but I, I just I can't help but mention Ezekiel. So Ezekiel has a, a similar, uh, uh, not similar, almost identical uh, thing that he says in verse 31. 
uh, pardon, pardon me, chapter 31 of Ezekiel. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he says, In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude. And he says, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade and a towering height, its top among the clouds. He goes on to say, All the birds of heaven uh, were... Uh, made their nests in its boughs, under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all the great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, the length of its branches for its roots, etc., etc. It actually even says in verse 8, the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. So I just think it's interesting that we have, you know, Daniel and then Ezekiel, who are contemporaries of each other, giving similar prophecies to kings uh, by God's hand, and it, it tells us something about God, you know, working through these prophets to deliver a message. Uh, the prophets to deliver a message and the kings to actually do his will, whether they want mm. to or not. And it's going to be big stuff, history moving, history affecting, salvation history affecting stuff. Well, you know, there's so much to learn, and what does happen next is pretty surprising, I think, to the readers, uh, certainly to King Nebuchadnezzar, but we'll get into that as we come back. Right now, we're going to listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments, we'll return, and Pastor Duke and I will continue our discussion of Daniel 4. We'll see you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is Dr. David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York. Well, Pastor, before the break, we had not yet gotten to Daniel's interpretation of the dream, but you were laying down some really good stuff about how we should understand apocalyptic literature, or maybe more importantly, how we shouldn't read apocalyptic literature. Um, there's a lot in this text, but is there anything else you want to make sure we cover before I read Daniel's interpretation? Oh, I think we have the vision itself. We talked about the tree and maybe it's sort of the tree of life par excellence. Ah, here's what we need to observe. This tree sort of, uh, and that's where the apocalyptic literature thing came in and ha is helpful here. This tree sort of morphs all of a sudden into a man. And then the man morphs into a beast. And that's the vision, right? Tree, man, beast. And it's sort of like that old psychedelic stuff from the 60s where mm -hmm. it's abundant color and all the shapes and stuff go from one thing into the other, like uh, the Beatles or Pink Floyd or something like that. That's kind of what you have in this vision. And I think now we're set up to go forward. Excellent. 
Well, we're going to read, it still isn't the rest of the chapter, but we are going to read the rest of the part of this chapter, which is the letter uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for sending out there that David is recording for us. Daniel, pardon me, is recording for us. Uh, here we go, starting with verse 19 through 27. Then Daniel was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived? It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity." This is the end of the letter part that Daniel is recording for us. It also includes his interpretation. It also includes a lengthy restatement of everything that we just read. I think that's sort of an interesting aspect of this chapter. And we see it elsewhere in the Bible, too. Yeah, generally when you see uh, this kind of stuff, you are seeing emphasis that there is uh, that there is an intention for you to pay attention to this, like, okay, there's this tree and got that. And then this tree is going to change into a man, got that. And now you know the main bits. You're not just sort of glancing over it and missing it because you've hit it twice. And that's important, right? Okay, so this vision is actually uh, to be studied. And we're, that's what we're doing. We're literally doing that right now. All right. And even this thing about the tree uh, being bound up uh, at the roots so that it can be kind of preserved, but also it can't grow either. That's an interesting detail to me. Um, I see if I can just kind of blast into it here, uh, unless Please you have do. a question here. I see um, a, a, a fertile kind of image, obviously. And there's about three directions you can go with it. It has um, it has elements of Deuteronomy chapter four of all places, where Moses says to to the people of, of Israel, like all of Israel, right? This isn't even later when they divided up and were just Judah and Israel and all that. 
all of Israel's gathered up. They're about to inherit the promised land. And he says, I call heaven and earth against you. You're going to make idols, even though you're not supposed to. You're going to fall away from Yahweh, your God, even though you're not supposed to. And he's going to send you into exile. And Daniel is set at the beginning of the Judahite exile when uh, uh, the Babylonians were about to take all of Jerusalem. I think this is right before that. And it could be concurrent and even after the actual big destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So here it is. It's actually come true. The great kingdom of God has been utterly reduced to nothing. They are in exile. And now they're looking at Nebuchadnezzar, the great king who's been made great by God. And here even now, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God is the one who made him great. And they're seeing the exact same thing. And we're on the front end of it. So it's sort of like bad news, good news, uh, which end of it do you want to be? Do you want to be on the bad news side or the good news side? Well, we're on the bad news side, Nebuchadnezzar. Things are going to go rough for you in a little bit. But if you're the people of God, you're Judah in exile, and by the way, leaping ahead a couple of weeks uh, from now, we're going to start singing that one song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, which mourns in lonely exile here. So when we're at the front end of Nebuchadnezzar, we see ourselves, we Judahites participating in the Old Testament church, and you know we Christians who are waiting for rescue, we see it coming. Well, why are we in exile? Well, <laughs> we're kind of proud. Uh, Christians and even Lutheran Christians can be a little arrogant about their about their position in their relationship to God and to the world. American Christians are very prosperous Christians, very uh, wealthy Christians in general. And, and I know there's a whole range of that, but in general. So why are we in exile? Why do we have to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as as Hamlet says, or Shakespeare has Hamlet say, why do we have to endure that? Well, we, we have our own arrogance and pride that we share with all the nations of the earth, uh, and we're going to be kind of clamped down on, and our 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 bark's going to be stripped off, and the ironclad uh, uh, binding of the roots is going to be ours as well to participate with. Even uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, even though we've kind of discussed that at first, how pagan is he at this point? And you can kind of see a whole lot of relationships developing in the Bible between Nebuchadnezzar, the people of Israel, and we uh, Christians here in the 21st century. I think that's really important to be able to do as a Christian interpreter of this kind of stuff. Hmm. I think that's very interesting. You know, you you ask about how pagan is he, and— I can't mm-hmm. help but bring to my mind how pagan is your average Christian in yeah. terms of these same these same ideas. Like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar clearly acknowledges, at the very least, I think we can all agree, he acknowledges that there is this God, and he's very powerful, gets things done, and he's with Daniel. That's why he likes Daniel. But, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is getting ready to see firsthand that this God is very powerful and can even exercise judgment. But he he at the same time holds on to some of his old idols or at least to some extent. And we here in the United States and other places in the world, we may be Christians, but how often do we find ourselves going back to our old idols, put, putting things over 
and above the king of kings. Um, maybe those idols are our job. Maybe those idols are sports. Maybe those idols are even mm-hmm. our family. You know, family, good, important yeah. things, but they can still become idols. And if we rely on them to sustain us as opposed to God, then we're, we're misplacing God. Hey, but Pastor yeah, so, Boo, what about uh, go, yeah, your church Your church building? Have you ever noticed that sometimes your church building can be kind of an idol? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. The church buildings, the, um, the well, you know, the, the church itself, that is. And what I mean by that is, you know, not just the gathering of saints, but the gathering of saints that think that they can't be a gathering unless it's at this particular geographical location. Oh, yeah, man. Preach it. There you right. go. That's, because, that's you know, what I'm we, after. Yeah. Yeah. We gather, we are gathered by God into a church and, and not to be too simplistic about it, but then, yeah, then there happens to be buildings we meet in. And yeah. while, while, you know, I did just get done talking a little bit about, you know, sacred geography, cause I'm going through uh, Genesis with my uh, parishioners on Sunday morning. Uh, and there is, I think something lost when we don't acknowledge that God comes to particular places and makes those places holy or sets them apart. But at the same time, you know, in these last days, he's made us holy. He's, he's set us apart. And right. that's how we can take the church outside the doors and to the world. And back to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we share the same sin that he did, and that is one of pride. And maybe we're right. not in the position of a king to rely on our power as our pride. But, yeah, there's, as you said, we, we're very wealthy compared to most people in the world. And sometimes we can fall into the temptation of thinking that that makes us blessed or better off. And yet we still need to put ourselves under the authority of God. I'm anticipating the next several verses here. You know, that's, I think that's where we're headed. Uh, Well, why don't we head there? Because it's it's Um, next in the chapter. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we head there? Because this is the end of what Daniel has recorded as being from the king. But in these next verses, this next section, which I'm going to read is going to be uh, you know, I'm gonna read the rest of the chapter, and this is going to be uh, a, an example of how everything that Daniel prophesied, or predicted, or interpreted from that dream came to pass, and what happened. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, "Is not this great Babylon?" which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. <laughs> so we have this interlude in the letter, right? Where it stops being the King Nebuchadnezzar's letter becomes, uh, at least as I read it, maybe I'm wrong, but as I read it, it becomes sort of this interlude where we are hearing from Daniel that the things happened. Mm-hmm. And then he finishes the chapter by bringing it back to how Nebuchadnezzar himself responded to these things. And again, not to jump all the way to the end, but he responds by calling God the king. And that would have been extremely tough for King Nebuchadnezzar to do, I imagine, to call someone Absolutely. else, even a God king. Absolutely, because he was the he was the king of the world. Right. right. There was no, nothing else. And you, you, maybe you had a couple of rivals way at the ends of the earth as far as Babylon is concerned. But yeah, for him to say king of heaven, uh, somebody else is king. It's just like David had to do. Uh, in uh, in that great when the when God made that great promise to him in uh, what's that Second Samuel eight somewhere around in there, um, yeah he had to say well you're you're the king I'm just a guy and in fact he's like uh, all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing they are accounted as nothing you know uh, that this is God uh, God is actually um, making his thing happen. Through Nebuchadnezzar, because we don't really know the circumstances. There's a lot of controversy about what actually happened here. Like if we were to open up the New York Times uh, circa 586 BC and try to figure Mm -hmm. out what what was going on here. You know, was this like when uh, King George III kind of went nuts uh, in the early 1800s? Or is this some other time? What, What actually happened here? How long did it last? We don't really know. But what we do know is that it happened, that something happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind. His sanity departed from him or was taken from him for pride to humble him, right? And so whatever that was that God wanted to have happen in the world uh, did happen by bringing Nebuchadnezzar to nothing. And somebody else had to rule in his place for some period of time, seven of them. Right. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he's made greater. I think that's really important to the interpretation of this whole chapter. I think what we have, if you can do this work as a Christian interpreter, if you can kind of get your mind around it, Nebuchadnezzar is not Jesus. But if you can think of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, loss of sanity as kind of like Friday night, Saturday, of holy week like what was that like right that must have been something can you imagine being peter on saturday morning you know uh and eat or you know and then put your place put yourself in the place of the women who are just sort of chatting about it and trying to figure out how this is going to go and well maybe we should go first thing after the sabbath is over and and do this thing and and jesus is alive and you have nebuchadnezzar who comes back from the dead, so to speak, in, in, in a typological way, uh, and he's even greater as the king, right? 
uh, of a Babylon, uh, which is a picture of the King of Heaven, whom we acknowledge to be Jesus. Uh, there, when of course the the notice is given to us by the nations of the world. By the way, and that's not an that's not an unimportant thing either. The Romans represent the nations in in totality, and Daniel's the one who kind of gives it to us that well. Uh, You've got Babylon, then you're going to get Persia, then you're going to get Greece, then you're going to get Rome. And they're all kind of like stand-ins for the kings of the earth, which is a, an apocalyptic thing. And this king of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, is doing obeisance to the king of, of, the, of heaven after modeling in an imperfect and broken way, modeling what actually happened to Jesus, the King of Heaven, who came and made the king, the kingdom of the kingdoms of the world, His, as He Himself says, all authority has been given to me. Right, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, make disciples of all nations by baptizing and by teaching. I think that's kind of packed in here in this doxology that uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it, extols God with, right? It sounds like if I can try to interpret what you're saying or sum it up, that when we read this part of Daniel 4, as fascinating as it is to think about the historical King Nebuchadnezzar, his rule, his struggle with the appearance of Daniel and the true God that Daniel worships, and as fascinating as it is to think about a king going crazy and then being restored by the hands of the one true God, and even to argue over whether he came to true faith or whether he just put Jesus on the shelf with the rest of his gods, as fascinating as all that is, at the end of the day, any of our knowledge about that does not save us. And the purpose of the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, is to point forward to the Christ who is to come. And so while, again, you know, for those listening, he, the, the pastor here is being very clear. He's not saying that King Nebuchadnezzar is some pre-incarnate Jesus or anything like that, but that he is a he could be seen as a type and as a, a, a vision apocalyptically, right? A revelation of the future, which comes to us through Jesus. And if that isn't what the Old Testament is supposed to be doing, I don't know what it does. So yeah. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. And I appreciate that that way of looking at it because I think, and we on thy strong word, we want to get to the application. We don't want to get lost in the weeds over, you know, well, this Aramaic word for time doesn't exist here. And so, you know, we don't know if the seven times or the seven periods of time is it. Yeah, that's all kind of interesting to dig into. But at the end of the day, we're saved by knowing about Jesus. And if we see something that God's revealing to us about Jesus here, then that's something we should take, especially since it's consistent, of course, with the rest of Scripture. Yeah, it, we we would lose that if we saw this as just a story about pride and humiliation and then restoration. We would miss Christ. You know, it has to be that. It has to be uh, humiliation and pride and then restoration. has to be. It's clear. But it, right. it's not biblical then. It's just a nice story. With Christ as the center of this story, uh, then it becomes actually effective. And and again, like Christians participating with the Judahites in the exile, we can actually look at Nebuchadnezzar and go, oh, there, there's our rescue. Because he, remember, he's the big tree. He's the he's in his person. He's the kingdom that uh, finds safety and uh, uh, dominion that never ends, as he says. Right. Uh, I think. 
I, my, my, my eye is wandering and I can't see exactly where that is, but this king, this, this dominion that came to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, in the uh, heavenly realm, an everlasting dominion. There it is. Yeah. For that's verse 34. I lifted my eyes to heaven and I saw this everlasting dominion and it's, that's the most high God, not Nebuchadnezzar and his pantheon. Not anymore. It has to be something bigger. Well, we just have a few minutes left in the show, brother. What would you have our listeners take home, either from this text or from um, anything in general? You know, something something they can share with their neighbors. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I stress, uh, especially as an Old Testament professor, and you know, it, it trickles into my my pastoral care, my poor unfortunate, um, <laughs> my poor unfortunate parishes. This this notion of participation. That we're in it together with the Israelites, with the Judahites, with these great kings and these great kingdoms. And uh, as, a, as a community that is actually all over the world, we participate in it that way. And then as little communities, like my little congregation in Newfane, New York, which you can find on a map if you try real hard, uh, uh, gets swallowed up by the community of Lockport, you know, uh, and then my little community of of uh, of of uh, uh, Youngstown, New York. That even that is a fully blown kingdom. Those sixty or eighty or one hundred and twenty people is a fully blown kingdom of God that sort of exists in the world, and it participates with the great big things that come from heaven. And so we're as little people, uh, a small community, a, a, a little, a little people in that sense, uh, a small community. We are bringing King Nebuchadnezzar and his experience, and the whole exile of the Judahites and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to the small community of Youngstown or whatever your community or your neighborhood is. If you live in a larger city or a larger suburb. You are that fully blown kingdom that endures forever uh, and it's on your lips and it's in your lives and in the works of your fingers through baptism. I mean, this is this is all just baptism at writ large, right? I'm just doing baptism riffs. Uh, this is you. This is all you. You can do this. Nebuchadnezzar, the, the pictures and the colors are great. They're big. They're bombastic. They, they're the huge images, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. That's fine. It's it's still in your daily life at your, your neighborhood school, right? You're doing this. And that's, I think, if anything, take comfort in that. Uh, be a little afraid, which is not unhealthy. You should be afraid, but also be joyful. You can have joy in enduring um, humiliation because you know that God is doing it. And when humiliation is already the um, restoration of the resurrection of Jesus, that's already true in your daily life. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Duke, Ph.D., pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York, and a professor of Old Testament theology at Concordia Lutheran Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Pastor, it looks like you need to find some more things to do, but for now, <laughs> thank you for being on the show. That was my pleasure. Um, and thank you, too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. 
Tune in tomorrow as we turn the page on Daniel to chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar fades away, and a new king enters the picture, King Belshazzar. Not to be confused with Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. (laughs) The handwriting's on the wall, folks. We'll read it tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.